0: This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast.
1: Hello there and welcome to the Bite Size Business Breakfast, a very special edition of today's show, Monday the 23rd of January, live from the Museum of the Future and the MENA IPO Summit. What's coming up? Well, looking at some of the big stories of the day, of course, and As you'd expect from this event, a big focus on stock market listings. We're going to hear from the CEO of Dubai Financial Market, Hamed Ali, exclusive interview with him, but also reaction from the guys at Emirates MBD. What does a thriving stock market actually mean for the economy of a country? Other things we're looking at today, looking at the crypto markets as well. Sake Erkat is the co-founder of Crypto Oasis. Really good start to 2023 for the cryptocurrencies. And finally, looking at the economics of restaurants. New report says It's really tough in the kitchens for chefs. What does that mean for the industry going forward? All that to come, but first up, let's dive straight into our top stories.
2: One market that's certainly active at the moment is the Dubai financial market, which has had an absolutely stellar year on the back of that IPO boom that we have seen here in the UAE as a whole. Uh, that big government privatisation programme which has seen um, so many new names come to market and has made headlines around the world as the uh, as the UAE and the DFM have bucked global trends when it's come to not just attracting investor interest but also money and IPOs themselves, which is the reason we're here today at the Museum of the Future for the first ever MENA IPO summit. And I'm speaking to the man behind it now. He's the CEO of the Dubai financial market, Hamad Ali, and he is here here in our Museum of the Future studio. Hamad, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
2: Tell me, why is the timing right for the first ever MENA IPO summit?
3: Um, if we look at the momentum we generated the last year, uh, last year we attracted about six listings, five, five of which were IPOs. Collectively, the IPOs ended up generating... Uh, Raising capital approximately at around $8.2 billion. The amount of money that was on the table, the generated demand from the IPO is what was around 180 billion US dollars. If you look at these figures and you look at the investor trends that we ended up seeing during this IPO, it generated a number of uh, key. Uh, performance metrics for us. One of which was the demand that we started seeing from the private sector. If you look at Dubai, Dubai today hosts about the largest concentration of the private sector in the entire Middle East and North Africa. And for us, it's very important that we end up having a market structure that can cater to the private sector. So these IPOs generated that momentum when it comes to the pipeline, when it comes to the inquiries that we ended up having inbound from the local market as well as from the outside market. The global IPO market last year was on a slowdown. The main active region last year was uh, the GCC, predominantly UAE and Saudi Arabia. And considering how Dubai is perceived uh, regionally and internationally, whenever um, a business is looking for an international listing venue, Dubai ends up becoming uh, the crown jewel or the main destination when it comes to that. So the reason behind this event is to introduce the IPO ecosystem and the listing ecosystem when it comes to Dubai for uh, companies that are interested. If you look at the lineup of the events or the workshops that we have and the type of speakers we have, we've generated a number of different uh, workshops that cover the entire, the life cycle the entire journey of a company thinking of an IPO all the way toward the IPO the listing and then post listing activities so for us it's timely given the momentum that we have when it comes to, when it comes to the IPO demand
2: So who's going to be in the audience who's going to be here listening to this?
3: We have uh, p- the primary audience is the potential companies that are exploring listing and some of these companies might be exploring listing over the next 12 months others might be exploring listing in a window of 24 to 36 months the important thing for for us as a market has always been to work closely with the advisors as well as the companies to make sure that the concept of going public is appreciated is understood and we end up choosing the most efficient path not only to the IPO but also to becoming a publicly listed company as well
2: What's the biggest questions these would-be publicly listed companies have? What do they ask you and your team?
3: There are a number of things, one of of which is the sustainability side of going public. Mm -hmm. There is a big element to that whenever you're sustainable you end up developing a governance structure that ensures that the company is sustainable. The second part is the visibility aspect of it. Being listed gives you a lot of credibility given that listed companies have a different level of transparency Mm -hmm. when it comes to the market. And the third element is the economics of the IPO. If you look at the markets in the GCC today, the markets are growing. Um, The markets can benefit from introducing new sectors that are currently underrepresented. These sectors can benefit from a valuation premium at this stage. So these are the main three benefits that we see when it comes to companies considering uh, going IPO. Now, then there are other elements that relate to the specific companies themselves in terms of how the market structure as well as the listing rules can assist them in terms of exploring.
2: What about on the investor side? What kind of shift has this boom meant for, for who's investing in device stocks?
3: The, the past one year, one of the key trends we started seeing relative to the average of the past years is the number of investors. Typically in a year, we would admit somewhere between 3,700 to 4,500 investors uh, admitted to the market. Last year, for the first three quarters, we saw this is the quarter ending uh, in 2022, the third quarter. We saw 155,000 investors come into the market. 72% of these investors came from outside the UAE. So that's one big trend and shift that we started seeing. Now, of course, the market was, we were proactive in terms of how we admit investors to the market. So on the retail side of invest, investors, we adopted a fully digital onboarding. And this mm-hmm. is not only the market, as as well as a certain number of brokers. This year, what we are intending to introduce is uh, a much more deeper nominee account structure, which allows institutional investors to have a much faster access to the market. The other part was in terms of the diversity and the type of market participants that we brought into the market. Last year, we admitted three main market participants, of which one was SwissCode, which is a major Swiss bank. They admitted approximately half a million. They they bring in uh, a client base of a million over half a million into the market the other main institution was hsbc came on board as a general clearing member we expect this momentum to continue this week uh, this year and what we're doing is we're enhancing the onboarding process for investors so that investor accessibility to the market becomes on par with international markets
2: what have you seen from working with the likes of Swissquote, which makes it and i Got it on my phone which makes it an awful lot easier for people to participate i think
3: for retail investors there are two main categories of investors the first is um, institutional investors and today when it comes to the market we're well catered to them however i think during covid we all realized that the relationship between the retail investor and the markets uh, has changed given the device that you just pointed at. To the retail investor, for them, the exchange is not a venue. For them, the exchange is the app they launch on the market. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we've done is work with the ecosystem, with the brokerage community in Dubai, as well as outside Dubai, to make sure that you as an investor, whenever you want to onboard into the market, it can be done fully digitally, and your interaction with the market is done in a very convenient way as well.
2: We've got about 40 seconds left with you. What's going to make the next two days a success for you? What do you want to see come out of this?
3: I think a candid uh, discussion, making sure that the, 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 the questions and the benefits of the IPOs are well articulated. But what's very important is that for us, this is not a two day event. This is a kickstart um and a continuation for discussions we've been having so it's very important for us that we sustain and continue these candid discussions with the companies the case of ipo for every company is different so you never bring in two companies that follow exactly the same route or the same economics and benefits from our point of view it's the relationship and the commitment and ongoing basis that we're keen on
2: well thanks so much for joining us here i know you have a very busy day uh, and it's only an hour or so until the first speaker's including yourself, uh, take to the stage here at the Museum of the Future. I've been speaking to Hamid Ali. Um, He is the CEO of the Dubai Financial Market. On the first day of the MENA IPO Summit, it's where we are broadcasting live from here on The Business Breakfast.
0: This is The Bite Size Business Breakfast. Exclusively on Dubaii1038.com.
2: We are going to turn our attention away from companies going public now to look at the companies that are setting up in the UAE, in Dubai, in the uh, crypto and metaverse space. My next guest has been, as Richard Dean would say, crunching the numbers. Saka Erikat is the co-founder of Crypto Oasis, and he's been looking Who's here working at the moment? Saka, good morning. Thanks for joining me.
4: Good morning. Thank you for having me. And um, in a such, such a beautiful location as well at the Future Museum. So I'm very I know. Excited. I Thanks. know.
2: Drove it, was it still let up when you drove in this morning?
4: No, it had been switched off, but it looked still as amazing as it would.
2: Yeah, woke me right up this morning. We're here because we are talking about bright, shiny things right. in Dubai, but right. bright, shiny bitcoins, if right. you like. You've right. been counting. How many companies are currently making up our ecosystem here? How have you done it and what have you found?
4: That's a really good question. And and, and starting off, you know, there's Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and there's blockchain companies. So we're counting the blockchain ecosystem, which is anyone that is utilizing this this technology. So we actually, there was no easy way of doing it. We see through the registers, we see through the news announcements, we worked with our partners in the space and uh, came up with a number. And the first number we came out with, it was at uh, Q4 of 2021 and we came out with 600 companies at the time.
2: Where are you drawing the lines? Because yes, we can see the The crypto companies that have set up. But if you're looking at companies that are using blockchain, you're counting everything from. Banks
4: to to trading companies that are using the ledger system. Exactly, and that's a really good point, which is why we created this differentiation between a blockchain-native organization and a blockchain-non-native organization. Think of a government entity using blockchain. Can I count them as a blockchain-native organization? Obviously not, Mm -hmm. right? What's impressive, though, to see is that the blockchain-native organizations in the Crypto Oasis ecosystem are actually 68% as of this year, and that's been slowly but rising
2: and that's interesting because you've done this count in in the last quarter of last year it wasn't i mean a lot of the brutality in crypto had happened earlier in in 2022 but it still wasn't a good quarter
4: well uh, believe it or not we haven't actually seen a slowdown in companies moving to the uae as crypto aces we believe the uae is the perfect amalgamation between three elements talent capital and infrastructure It's the infrastructure, the world class infrastructure that we all consume, right? But also the digital infrastructure, the physical infrastructure, and most importantly, I guess, the regulatory infrastructure, right? And then you have the capital that is moving here. We're here at the MENA IPO Mm -hmm. summit, right? Um, More IPOs in the last year than ever before, right? More hedge funds moving to the UAE than ever before. But probably the most significant element is talent. Talented people, talented individuals are moving to the UAE.
2: And you've done a a job count, haven't you? You've looked at what this means for positions, for jobs, for employment.
4: And we've seen a significant increase. So we have 8,300 people in the space right now. That's up from 7,000 people just a couple of months ago.
2: Are you differentiating those um, entities that are Dubai and UAE born from those that have come in from outside? Have you got any idea of the split?
4: It's difficult to do that because many of our organizations, they have their residence somewhere else. Um, In the UAE, you can't issue a token just yet, right? And this is mostly driven by a token economy. So many of the companies are set up, for example, in Switzerland in here, in Singapore in here, and the Cayman Islands in here. Um, But we are seeing an impressive number, which today is 68% of the ecosystem is blockchain native organizations.
2: Do we have also (coughs) any idea, and this is, one of the things we're going to be discussing here when it comes to hedge fund managers, um, the amount of people who have moved in from from elsewhere, as we all got a little bit more mobile about where we were working and living in COVID, where are we seeing the talent come from when it when it comes in here?
4: What's impressive in the UAE, so in Europe you have certain talent hotspots and certain countries that are that are pulling the talent. What's impressive in the UAE, I can point towards talent coming here from Brazil, from Latin America, from South America. I can point to to talent from Africa, from Asia. It really is that hotspot where everyone wants to move to the UAE, particularly in many cases, Dubai, right? And again, there it's difficult to create the differentiation because many of our ecosystem members have dual residency. They spend most of the time here, but they are somewhere else as well.
2: How do we keep them here for more of the time?
4: That's a very interesting question. I think what the UAE government is doing is, is, is moving exactly on, on that, right? If we look at the Ministry of Economy, the Ministry of Economy wants to double the um, aspects of the digital economy moving to the overall economy from 9% to 19%. If we look at Dubai, Dubai came out with this ambitious plan, D33, where they want to invest in the entire ecosystem of economy. And one of the key pillars is technology.
2: How do we make sure that we are getting uh, the right people with the stability and the liquidity and the transparency to uh, basically stand the test of time? I mean, we've been covering the the FTX collapse on the show. It's not the only um, company to be making headlines for all the wrong reasons, and we don't want to be in those headlines.
4: I think Dubai pulls everyone in the end, or the UAE pulls everyone, right? It's important to see that these people from all around the world, different cultures, different nationalities, different people from all around the world. In the UAE, the standard for working is rather high. The standard of living is rather high. So not everyone can make it in the UAE, right? So that in itself is a natural um, element that puts down the numbers.
2: Ericat is the co-founder of Crypto Oasis, he's joining us here at the museum in the future in our mobile studio, talking us through the numbers that they have been putting together about the amount of companies working not just in the crypto space, but also in metaverse, in the Web3 ecosystem, and also just on the blockchain ledger system as well. More than 8,000 individuals by their count in the last quarter of last year.
0: Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast.
2: Right, let's
1: talk about the finance of food, the economics of Epicurean delights. Joining us on the line, delighted to say, is the chef whose restaurants have won a Michelin star, Greg Malouf, based here in the region, joining us live from Saudi Arabia this morning. Greg, good morning. Thanks very much
5: indeed for being with us. Yes, good morning. Good morning to you. Let's Thank talk you about- for having me.
1: It's good to have you with us. Appreciate your time. Let's talk about this disturbing new research that's come out from Europe, from Cardiff University in Wales and the Emlyon Business School in France. And they have been looking at particularly fine dining restaurants with Michelin stars. And chefs are facing extreme suffering, they say. They are sterilizing their wounds on hot stoves and, the report <laughs> says, plunging their hands into deep fat fryers to prove themselves at work. Oh, God. Is the Michelin star worth it, Greg?
5: Uh, look, it's a it's an interesting accolade, um, and it has its merit. Uh, Michelin's based on, from what I believe, on quality of produce and um, the way a restaurant's operated in a fair, um, friendly kind of manner, um, and. You know, I'm hoping that hospitality um, keeps healthy, respectful, and, and and honest. And I guess that starts with management. And whether it's uh, Michelin or high end restaurants, down to cafes, it's pretty much. Um, you know that I've seen abuse over um, maybe three and a half, four generations now, and it just seems like it's a well, it's it's. Kind of generational, uh, you know. Commies grow into this through abuse and and through crazy hours in a kitchen, and you know they're working in a hot box. Uh, it's they're working long hours. Their um, social life is destroyed completely, mm-hmm. even mar- marriages. Um, and they take they you know, they grow into chefs themselves and. Think that this is the right way to move or the right way to go forward you greg know, if I could
1: just read some of the findings from the research uh, many chefs and it was uh, more than 60 restaurants with michelin stars that were surveyed anonymously they detailed physical abuse bullying from the yes. start of their career one junior chef described being locked in fridges punched and kicked about uh, yes. One said, at such a young age, I was in a position where I felt very, very lonely. I was exhausted. Is that still the case? I mean, the world has moved on since the 1980s in, in many, many workplaces as well. H- has, has restaurant work culture moved on or is it still stuck in the dark ages, Greg? Uh,
5: look, it's, it's, it has moved on. It's, it's a lot better than what it was. I know that. Um, especially in the... Look, I, I know that for a fact in Australia, you... Uh, the, the laws are quite strict. Uh, in fact, they're super strict in how you deal with your kitchen staff and especially being underpaid and overworked or, or work crazy hours. Uh, and this is all monitored. Um, here it's, I think in the, in the UAE, it's, it's, it's quite similar. But, you know, you do get pockets of um, of uh, grumpy chefs that think that... that the way forward is to um, have a huge ego and, and um, have this fear of failure, and that's um, maybe that's the title of that movie that came out. Maybe it should be the new title of that movie that came out recently, The Menu, mm-hmm. because that's all about ego and fear, fear of failure on both sides. Greg, f- uh, finally,
1: let me ask you about the economics of these chefs. To say you, you've, you've won a Michelin star, but I was reading—we all have—over the past couple of weeks that arguably the world's best restaurant, Noba in Copenhagen, is shutting down. Despite charging five, six hundred euros for a, a tasting menu, the chef René Redzepi, who's a—he's yeah, an absolute rock star of the restaurant industry—he says yeah. the model just does not work. It costs so much to prepare these 10, 12 course tasting menus at that level. That even charging five, 600 euros per head, you can't make it work. So he's shutting down. How, how are the economics of restaurants stacking up at the moment? What's the sweet spot in fine dining when you can make money?
5: Well, you can um, survive in, rest- in high-end restaurants if you're clever about firstly purchasing. Secondly, uh, which is really important, uh, and and also wastage is a huge factor. I mean, I, look, I've seen resta- I've been in restaurants and high end restaurants where um, half the product has been um, um, put in the rubbish bin. So they, they use uh, this these techniques to get from A to B, and uh, food costs jump incredibly high. And also, they need um, staff to. To deal with this Um, and staff are not prepared now to spend or most staff aren't prepared to spend 10-12 hours standing in a kitchen picking herbs and and and, um, you know peeling uh, zucchinis or potatoes I think those days are kind of um, dwindling but when you get to that super high end um Uh, restaurants will stop at nothing um, for a, a means to an end and I guess for them it's all about perfection and accolades and ego
1: Well, we've all got a bit of an ego when we all like our accolades. Let's hope the work culture is improving. Greg, thanks very much indeed for joining us. That's the chef, Greg Malouf, whose restaurants have won Michelin stars on that new research from Cardiff University and M. Lyon University, talking about extreme suffering in kitchens.
0: Just the highlights. This is the Bite sized Business Breakfast.
1: Tom, looking at some of the other stories making headlines this weekend. Dubai making headlines around the world because this lady was in town and performing. DJ Jensi, let's have some Beyoncé.
2: Yeah,
0: indeed, Uh, Beyonce taking to the stage. First performance since 2018 at the launch of the new Atlantis, the Royal at the end of the Palm. Uh, Much talked about. Uh, Obviously, we've seen the structure go up, the big unveiling. It was star-studded event, not just for the Beyoncé performance, but also uh, we had some of the, and you're just talking to Greg Malouf, some of the best chefs uh, in the on the uh, across from across the world in town to celebrate those that opening as well. Uh, Nobu was reopened, a lot of celebrities tokio, taking up to the new Nobu uh, that uh, opened up at uh, Atlantis The Royal. Uh, we've also got uh, Jose Andres in town. Um, who uh, is a man who is renowned the world over, not just for his restaurant empire, but also uh, for his humanitarian work as well. And, lest we forget, the brother of Mariano Andres, or formerly of Sevilles. <laughs>